As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and our weekend review. We have plenty to discuss about a weekend where Tommy Tuchel tonked a tepid Tottenham. Madrid made a meal of it at the Mestalla and PSG prospered as Poch put paid to the power cube. Shakiri, Shakiri. My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who is just like James Rodriguez in the Everton Football Club have no interest in employing him, Taylor Rockwell. Hello. I will actually take that over where I thought you were going to go, which is a man who's soon to be paid by Qatar. That's not what I want. Uh, But yes, Everton not bidding for me at present time. And I can't really blame them because I'm aware of my fitness. So you like Rodriguez in some ways, but not in others. I think we can uh, deduce that, Taylor. I mean, we're pretty much the exact same person, except for that one notable difference and a few others. Well, you both got the killer abs glistening in the sunshine as <laughs> yes. we speak. Yes. Yes, his exist and mine are drawn on with a Sharpie, but we both have the same abs, that's true. <sighs> also here is a man who doesn't <laughs> like much in life, but he loves him some Kareem Benzema, it's Graham Rudman. <laughs> Hello Ryan, how are you? I'm very good. Uh, when are you starting the Church of Kareem? Is it uh, anytime soon? Because I, I, I do notice you tweet about him a lot, and with good cause, Graham, because he's excellent. Oh, he's he's so good. People don't know. People don't know, which is saying something because he's a Real Madrid striker who's been around for like 10, 15 years. But people still don't know how how good he is. I I, uh, very much enjoyed him watching him last night. Um, I was very tired last night because I was fresh from a a weekend of vigilantism. Um, But Karen Benzema kept me awake last night with with that performance. He's, He's playing so well at the moment. I feel like we're burying the lead here. You just mentioned some vigilantism, <laughs> Graham. You're going to have to expand on that. Yeah, so as I think I, I may have mentioned on the podcast before, or maybe off, off air talking to you guys, our, our uh, house and development is getting hit with break-ins at the moment. Uh-oh. So myself and a few neighbours have decided to do kind of nightly patrols of the, of the housing development. It's basically like the Homer the Vigilante episode of The Simpsons. We have a secret vigilante handshake. We've got code names, sacks full of doorknobs, the whole lot. 
R- Ryan, Ryan, just abandon part one of this episode because we're going to spend a good 20 minutes on this topic. <laughs> Graham, what are you like? Are you wearing reflective vests? Are you like intimidatingly carrying a baseball bat? Have you gone full like Mad Max Fury Road style? Do you chrome yourself up before you go out? Like what's the approach to neighborhood chrome defense? Chrome. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we, we kind of myself and uh, two other neighbors uh-huh. were talking about this. We went out, we went out and did a patrol and then realized what, what if we spot this guy? So our plan was basically just <laughs> to just to shout hits. just to shout at him just to make a lot of noise and kind of like shoo him away like a wild animal um so that he doesn't come back but yeah we we kind of realized as we were halfway around what are we going to do if we find this guy but something has Graham, to be done like have you seen movies before clearly you're dealing with some sort of uh, either paranormal event or some sort of like like supernatural being, and you and your <laughs> friends are in some sort of like lighthearted comedy. I feel like this is the watch, basically. This is a Ben Stiller movie that you're now starring in. I'm excited to see how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, I've got some football shirts to protect Taylor, so you know, yeah. I've got to take <laughs> matters in my own hands. There's Not some, your child, the, just yeah. your football shirt. The stakes are high here. <laughs> Tune in next week, listener, when we discover that this is actually a Fight Club situation, and Graham is the burglar as well. At <laughs> <laughs> it was an inside job the whole time. Crafty, crafty, crafty. And also joining us, of course, is a man who is such a soccer genius that he could probably even figure out how to make Man City fans attend Champions League games. It's Joe Lowry. Oh, Ryan. Oh, Ryan. That is a big job. Pep is, Pep is on the verge of tears after Champions League games. I can't, I can't fix all our problems at Man City. Yeah, not quite. It seems that Pep can't either, Joe. A nil-nil against Southampton <laughs> this weekend, despite a near-capacity 53,000 fans. They won't come for the Champions League, but they will come to not see any shots on goal against Southampton, Joe. I mean, yeah, that's that. That's probably not how I would go about choosing my own soccer viewing schedule. But um, if they if they'd rather watch a, a nil-nil against Southampton than a six-three against Leipzig, you know, more more power to them. More power to him indeed. I'm, I'm sorry, James. I'm, I'm getting ready to talk about soccer, but I just need to go back to this vigilante situation. <laughs> yep. I'm, I'm like, uh, Graham, are you going to do it every night from going forward? How, when does this end? When you catch him in like a cage that falls from the ceiling? So, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to rig my house like uh, Kevin McAllister. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we've established a pattern. Myself and a few neighbours have established a pattern of when he hits. It tends to be Friday nights between three and four, and it tends to be two nights in a row, which is why on Saturday night we thought that he would come back again, but he did not. So, yeah, it's basically the, the you know, the meme of, of uh, you know, Charlie Day with the, in, in, in Philadelphia with the, all the, all the conspiracy <laughs> stuff pinned to the wall. That is basically my office at the moment with this burglar. Wow. I will say, I don't know for sure where Joe Pesci is between the hours of 3 and 4 a.m. So it could be a Kevin McAllister Home Alone situation, Graham. I think you're taking appropriate action. The obvious question that remains, is there alcohol involved? Like, is this the three of you, like, protecting the neighborhood, quote-unquote, but really sitting in a driveway with tins of lager? <laughs> I mean, I can envisage a situation where it evolves into that, uh-huh. but at, at this stage, it has not, it has not reached that, no. <laughs> I gotta go out to protect the neighborhood. I'll be back later on slurring. Perfect. <laughs> I want to see some Braveheart style speeches, Graham, about how people can never take your OnlyFans subscription away from you. That's coming soon. You'll never take my 2008 Paris Saint Germain away, Jersey. Sorry, that was a really bad Scotland, uh, Scottish impression. I won't do that again. I apologize. But, Graham, I do wish you well in your, uh, in your pursuits. Um, 
Yeah. What a cracking start to this podcast. But we do have plenty of soccer to talk about as well. We've got Premier League coming up. We've got some Serie A. We're going to go all around the houses on the continent as well. We're going to start off, though, in the Barclays, in the Premier League. I just mentioned there how Man City um, uh, played against Southampton. Maybe Pep had wished he'd uh, done a little more on the field than he, in terms of prep uh, for this one, instead of encouraging fans to attend. City failed to score for only the second time in 41 home matches here, nil-nil against Southampton. Ronaldo. Taylor scored once again. He scored in every single game since returning to Manchester United. Uh, they earned a 2-1 win at West Ham, of course, where Mark Noble had a late penalty save. You're still pretty happy about that situation, Taylor? Uh, about the result? Everything! Uh, I mean, I think that it was a pretty pretty wild game, for sure. I did not watch it live. I went back and watched it uh, the full thing from start to finish because I knew that it ended pretty crazily, and it did indeed. I also do agree with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer that there were some penalties missed in this one. I also think that yeah. there was a penalty missed on Aaron Wan-Bissaka, who I know used to know how to tackle. I know he used to know how to not commit egregious acts of like harm on other players. But uh, yeah, some interesting decisions in this one, uh, including the decision by David Moyes to bring on uh, Mark Noble to then have his penalty saved. That did not seem like the nicest decision. Really, maybe he should have learned from Gareth Southgate this summer. He didn't, and we have our second example of why maybe warm-ups and practicing shooting is important. Yeah, there's only one former Man United manager who can bring on players uh, to, to take penalties, and it's not David Moyes, I suppose, Taylor. Um, yep. Liverpool, they put three unanswered by Crystal pa- uh, against Crystal Palace, I should say. Uh, Brentford got a 2-0 win, uh, away win at Wolves, uh, with a goal and an assist from Ivan Tony, Graham, who I saw you writing about. Ivan Tony is going to be England's next superstar, is that right? Um, maybe not go that far, but I thought he was very, very impressive. Um, he did everything. He scored, he assisted, he held up the ball, he played as a lone front man, he played as a, a as one half of a front two, he was helping out defensively, and I saw Christopher Eyer, who uh, incidentally, I'm going to pull a Ryan Bailey here, lived on my street previously uh, in Glasgow. He's now Is it him? Is he the criminal? <laughs> He's the guy! Get him. Go get him, Graham. <laughs> He's, well, he was he was talking after the win over, over Wills for Brentford, he was saying it was the best centre-forward performance he's ever seen. Again, I'm not sure I would go that far, but it was very impressive from Ivan Tony. Very impressive indeed. Uh, what's also impressive, gents, Liverpool have the exact same record as Chelsea at the moment. All five matches have a mirrored scoreline, a 3-0, a 2-0, a 1-1, a 3-0, and a 3-0. They are tied at the top of the table, which leads us nicely to the game we're going to discuss Tottenham nil, Chelsea three. Uh, A a note of sadness uh, preceded this game, gents. It was the day that legendary Jimmy Greaves, uh, the legendary striker, died. He started his career at Chelsea, got 132 goals for them. He scored 266 for Tottenham as well, a man very loved by both clubs. Uh, So we had some, uh, some, um, some celebration of his life before that game as well. But Joe, let's talk a little bit about... Tottenham and Chelsea here. Tottenham seem to come out the gates pretty well. Um, a game of two halves, I think you should call, you could call this. What did Chelsea do to turn it on in the second half and change this game up, Joe? Yeah, okay, so first of all, quick quick credit for me for Tottenham because I thought they were excellent in the first half. I kept waiting for things to drop off from Tottenham and from Nuno, and it it never did, really. They came out in this flexible 4-3-3 shape that at times looked like a 4-4-2 and at times like a 4-2-2-2. Got the number of twos right. I'm really happy with that. Great performance, Joe. I mean, they looked they looked <laughs> strong, right? They looked aggressive, and I was waiting for Chelsea to really break through and expose them and that moment just never came in the first half. So then the second half starts, Ryan. And to get to your actual question here, 
Tuchel did make a little bit of a personnel and a formation tweak in the second half. He put Conte on and went to a three-man midfield in, in more of a 3-5-2 instead of that 3-4-3. The signs for that, though, were there at the end of the first half as well when Mason Mount dropped back into midfield and did, essentially did what Conte did in the second half. So it wasn't you know this insane tactical change, but I do think that gave them a little bit more stability in the midfield and allowed them to attack and transition a little bit more, allowed Kai Havertz and Romelu Lukaku to play off of each other as a front two in that shape. But really, I think the biggest turning point in this game was the fact that Chelsea get that goal on the corner from Thiago Silva in the 49th minute. I think Tottenham were still in this thing and they were pushing for at least at least a point, if not three. And then Thiago Silva gets that goal in the 49th minute and then the tie changes and it really is a tale of two halves at that point. Conte gets a, a, a really fortunate goal in the 57th minute that deflects off of Hoiberg and goes in. That's 2-0. And then Rudiger scores the, the goal in the 92nd minute. It's done by that point. So e- even though Tottenham lose this game and Chelsea do a lot of things well I've got credit to give them I'm I'm, I'm assuming we all do I was really impressed with what Tottenham brought to the table and I think if that Thiago Silva corner goes a little bit differently we're probably talking about this game in a different way so so that was the turning point the goal perhaps and and I think yeah a lot of people point in the fact that it was Mount um, switching up for Kane and and, and shoring up the midfield a little bit Uh, Taylor what did you make of Tottenham's performance here and and Nuno's system the three central midfielders here like kind of the Christmas tree formation he was playing here it seemed like to me it was a tale also of game management in that one manager knew how to do it and one didn't in the second half. I mean, I think one manager had the bench that Thomas Tuchel had and one yeah. manager had the bench that Nuno had. That would be my my, my guess on things. Because I agree with Joe that I think the first half for Spurs was about as good as they could have hoped for. Obviously, probably they would have liked to get a goal in there that would have changed the the kind of vibe of the game overall. But I, I think I disagree a little bit because I do think that with... Tuchel's ability to adjust and like bring on N'Golo Conte at halftime is a pretty good adjust- adjustment. It did seem like Spurs, at least at this point in the season, are going to struggle to keep up that intensity of their press, the intensity of their tracking and marking and and just hassling Chelsea and always being a threat on the counter. And I think as the game went on, they were just less inclined to do that. And I also think, or less able to do that, rather. And I also think that Harry Kane, uh, this was the point that the match of the day guys were making, Harry Kane sort of moving around to try to find space, to try to help facilitate attacking play and link up play and hold up play is good and noble, but at the same time, routinely meant that he was dropping 30 yards from the front line. So even if he did find a way to play out or Spurs found a way to play out, he's now well behind the line of attack and has to try to make up for it. And if he can't, then you're missing this kind of critical attacker. And I think there were definitely problems in the way Tottenham were trying to attack. I thought they did a good job defensively in the first half, but I think it's a credit to Tuchel and Chelsea that they made adjustments and then they really just stayed persistent. I think there were a few teams this weekend that sort of backed themselves to get a result when it didn't seem like they would or didn't seem like it was as clear cut as it ended up being. And Chelsea were definitely one of those teams. And could, Taylor, can you expand on the problems in trying to attack? What, do you, what exactly do you mean by, by that? Because by all accounts, Hurricane had a relatively ineffective game here. But was that not due to some pretty imperious defending on the other side as well? well sorry, what do you mean? Well, you said that they're having problems in, in attack. I wanted you to... Just yeah. A little bit well, more what I mean is that. that when you have Harry Kane, like meant to be the like leading the line, stretching the defense, always being a threat, keeping the defenders honest, that can work if he's got people kind of buzzing around him, playing off of him. If he's got wide attackers and then overlapping fullbacks, and he can sort of stay central, keep defenders central, and he opens up space for other players, and then he himself can find space and be in good attacking positions. But as he has to drop thirty yards to be another central midfielder 
Like you just lose that presence up top and it allows Chelsea to, I think theoretically they're supposed to follow him, but they didn't because they still had numbers in the middle. And so it ended up being that even when Kane would get the ball and play forward, if it was to Son, let's say there's still three defenders there and it never had the added impact of I'm going to like check out, check out of this area. A defender will follow me. And now somebody can sprint into that like vacated space and attack the ball and attack goal. What it ended up being was Harry Kane would vacate that space to get the ball and turn and play into that space where nobody was or dribble backwards and backwards and backwards and backwards as happened a couple of different times. So I think in removing him from the kind of attacking setup or removing himself from the attacking setup, I'm going to guess it was more of an individual thing. Uh, basically, he limited his ability to get involved in the attack. Yeah, Graham, your thoughts on on uh, Nuno's system here as well. And, and um, Taylor mentioned the fullbacks there as well. They didn't seem to be up to much in this game either. No, I thought Sergio uh, Reguilón played played pretty well in in, in the first half. Um, I think the I'm going to contrast Nuno with with Tuchel because I think it's increasingly becoming the case that Chelsea's biggest strength is the way that not just the, their squad. And I'm going to throw this back to to Tottenham to make a point, but. Their biggest strength is that they don't just have options and depth. It's that Tuchel can can change between different different approaches. Yeah. And obviously, I think Joe's absolutely right. The biggest change in the game is the goal. But equally, the change at halftime that Tuchel, Tuchel makes that puts on Kante is is a big thing in this match. And so he's he is he's not slow to make changes. And every change he seems to make has a has an effect. And if I look at Nuno, you know he gets his game plan correct for the first half of this match. But then when the when the contest changes, when the dynamic changes, you're kind of sitting there going, okay, what's next? What's your response to this? And I haven't seen that from Nuno yet. And it was the same in the Crystal Palace game, where you know Spurs go down to, to ten men, Tanganga gets um, sent off, and Nuno didn't really know how to how to adapt to that and that could just be the case of he hasn't got a firm grasp of what he has in his squad he doesn't know how he can change games yet it's it's a it's very early days for him at Spurs he came in late he didn't have a long pre-season really the other thing is also while this game certainly won't have been much fun for Spurs and their fans I think this is kind of the thing we expected from this matchup Micah Richards was making that point on on Sky and that Chelsea are at a different level to Spurs at the moment. I think the poorer reflection came in that game I was just talking about, the Crystal Palace game where they lose 3-0. That raises much more questions, but I do think the question that was raised, as I say, is Nuno able to change a game? He wasn't able to do it against Palace, and I think that that there was more evidence added to that argument by the way Spurs kind of folded in the second half here. Graham, I think that's that's a really smart point there because like what I think of with what you're talking about when it comes to Nuno is is establishing the foundation. I think of it like cooking. Like if you're following a recipe, you have to sort of at least cook the recipe once following the instructions to then be like, okay, it needed to cook a little bit longer. We needed to add this. This didn't quite work. But you first have to kind of have that baseline, that foundation. And when Nuno takes over at Wolves, I, it, there's at least a season in the championship, maybe two seasons in the championship under Nuno. And and so then he moves to the Premier League, but by that point, the team all kind of understand his style, understand how he wants to play, and then once you hit the Premier League, you can stick with that, but also adjust because everybody has that same foundation. And I think you're totally right that Spurs just don't have that footing yet to be able to adapt and adjust on the fly and make those little adjustments because they're still trying to make sure they're doing exactly what was asked of them in the first place. And then I look at Tuchel, and I think you're totally right, that he does seem to have that ability and has had that ability pretty early on with Chelsea, but continues to have it here. And it, it contrasts with, uh, or it goes along with basically, I was looking into Max Allegri when he first took over at Juve, we'll talk about them more later, 
But a lot of it, the strength of his sides was his ability to make those adjustments and to change things up and to play one formation, but then change it 30 minutes in when the opponent was doing something different. And I think Tuchel has that same ability to adjust and move people around and ask his players to do different little things or different big things. I don't think Spurs and Nuno are quite there yet. Um, Graham, your thoughts on Timo Werner? I know he's he's someone who I think you champion from occasion. Yeah, and I, I think maybe I, I belong to the the, the Werner Skeptics Club. He came on here and, sure. and played a very good role in the assist for the third goal, of course. Uh, I think I, one of the quotes I saw about him, which I quite enjoyed, was his feet can't keep up with his brains. He's got really good <laughs> vision, uh, maybe maybe less so on the execution when when goal is facing him. But he does seem like you know those, those cutbacks. He does he does that a lot, doesn't he? And he's really good at like spotting his teammates. But it can't be a confidence thing. Maybe is it just that he's like a a striker who doesn't finish well, but can play a very important role for this team with his pace, with the way he opens things up, with with the kind of vision that he has? Yeah, I think you've reflected kind of what my thoughts are. I I don't think Timo Werner is going to win a Ballon d'Or anytime soon. I'm not even sure that he's a first team player for Chelsea at the moment, but I do think he has a role to play in this Chelsea squad and I was pleased to see him come on and, and play up top in a front two with, with Lukaku I've been curious about how that might work since Lukaku has signed because I think there's potential I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast but I think there's potential for Werner to be a Lataro Martinez-esque figure for Chelsea in that partnership with Lukaku and I think there were signs of of, of, of something here um, in this in this performance obviously he's still he, sh- he probably should have scored there's still that Werner moment wh- which has you tearing out your, your hair where Lukaku kind of draws the two men towards him on the counter attack Werner's left in space Lukaku plays the pass to him he's in the box you're thinking get the shot away and the ball gets cut under his feet and I think that's the most frustrating thing about Werner it's not so much in the chances that he misses in terms of the shots it's the it's in the shots he doesn't make that are the most frustrating thing about Timo Werner. And that is, that was 100% a scenario where he should have got a shot away. He probably should have scored in that situation. So he's, he's still got his flaws. But I just think this was another sign of the options that Chelsea have. You know, they, they, they took all starts with a, a fairly central trio that he has, he has favoured uh, of uh, Mason Mount, Kai Havertz, Lukaku, and then having the width from the, from the wing bats that kind of morphs into a front line of Havertz supporting Lukaku as a front man. And then laterally with the, the Chelsea have a lead and they can kind of protect and then hit out in the break. They have Werner frequently going beyond Lukaku as, as, as the kind of apex. And I think that works really well as well. So yes, I was, I was pleased to see Werner come on. And that says to me that Tuchel, um, sees that he has a value in his squad as well, which I, I totally believe. For me, Joe, I think this shows that Chelsea probably have the best spine in the Premier League. And you know how important the spine is to building a team out. You've got Thiago Silva at the back, who had another incredible display in this game. You know, Jorginho in the middle, and you've got, we had Kunta coming on. And, and Kovacic is one of those midfielders who just He's almost in the background. He's like he's background tasks performing, to use computer terminology. But he just gets the job done really well. And then you've got Lukaku in front of them. That is... Is there a better spine in the Premier League than that, Joe? Uh, Liverpool were the first ones that came to mind just because Virgil van Dijk is the best defender in the Premier League and, and maybe the best defender in Europe. And so it's hard for me to to put Chelsea ahead of them necessarily. But then you look towards the front line, and I think Lukaku is a difference maker in a way that Liverpool maybe don't have in the, in the center of their attacking trio. It changes a little bit for Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool with how they attack. But even setting that aside, you've got City in that group as well. But But Chelsea have... 
so much quality. And I mentioned it already, and we've kind of already talked about it, but the way that they can break teams down and the different ways that they can set up even, that's not even a style change. We didn't really see Chelsea abandon one set of tactics and adopt another in this game. They did tweak some things, but the, mo- the biggest thing that they tweaked was the shape. And the fact that they can go from a front three to a front two so seamlessly, and the fact that they can have players execute in both of those different shapes. We saw Thomas Tuchel do that last year. It's not a big surprise, but to continue to see this team perform so well in a number of different alignments, I mean, they still haven't given up an open play goal in the Premier League this season. They continue to score goals. They're at the top of the table. They are doing so many things well right now, and this game was just another example in that list. Taylor, you touched on this earlier about how a team can, how how Tuchel can get his team to click so quickly and so effectively, and sort of follow his patterns and, and get on board with him. And maybe Nuno hasn't necessarily done that, or the players aren't quite on board with what he's doing. Is that just is that the difference between a really good manager and a really really good manager in terms of like adopting your philosophies quicker, perhaps? I mean, I really do think a lot of it has to do with the money on offer that Chelsea can make the signings they have and then can go out and reinforce this summer and get Lukaku to add to that equation. And so then when you're making those halftime changes, that's why I think I don't think Mason Mount necessarily like did anything particularly wrong or was this like consistently problematic player that was pulled off at halftime. I think it's just that Tuchel is able to brief individual players to do specific things. And so Mason Mount, from my from my viewing, tended to have to kind of slide out wide and to be a sort of wide midfielder that also then pivoted back and became more of a central midfielder. When Conte comes on, it, to, like from what I saw at least, he seemed to be pretty much operating centrally and more in an attacking position than I'm used to with Conte. But I think like even just that, to have him come on there and create midfield overloads and be sort of that central point that then could be partnered with Kovacic, Jorginho stays home, but you then have the fullbacks advancing and it just gives them a different look. But I think it's because they have the depth and the ability to then utilize that depth. Whereas with Spurs, I think they are on the one hand kind of figuring out and learning Nuno Ball and learning the basics of it and learning exactly where they need to be and then how to like attack and transition the way he wants them to. But also they just they don't have that that same amount of depth and that same money to be spent. Maybe they will. Maybe they sell, they'll sell Kane in January and then reinvest that money, although I don't know if that uh, solves the problems that they currently have. But I, I, I feel like it would be harsh to fully go after Nuno for not like making the proactive changes that Thomas Tuchel did because those squads are just different squads at the moment. Definitely so. Some work to do at Tottenham, perhaps. A 3-0 win for Chelsea this one was, by the way, gents, the first carbon-neutral sporting event in the world they were touting this as. The quote, this is achieved when all direct emissions are reduced as much as possible with the remainder offset through natural projects that remove emission from the atmosphere. That's fun, isn't it? I think we saw pictures of Arlo White on Twitter eating something carbon-neutral, from what I can see, some soup or something. Um, Dust. I, yeah. I actually was when I was watching this at home. I put the heating on and the air conditioning to balance it out. Am I, am I, am I doing it right? Is that what you're all I, Ryan, all I can think when I heard that was the like uh, in the office when Michael Scott just is trying to get a crowd riled up and and just yells out like we are going completely carbon neutral and everybody cheers, but he has no idea what it means and doesn't really mean it at all. Like there was an element of that to the uh, those pronouncements, but I guess it's good, Ryan. Less so your approach, but their approach was good. Yes, I kid, of course. I kid, of course. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm no, no polar bear. You had a fan on too. On my, yeah, you had the car on. <laughs> <laughs> and I the refrigerator got... door open to cool down the kitchen. Fun fact: I just got an electric car. So there, so there, guys. Anyway, uh, we'll be back very shortly after these messages with some SETI R. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we have returned. Let us take our attention to Serie R and some Calcio. is a big win for Inter Milan. 6-1 over Bologna to go top of the league this weekend. They leapfrog over Roma. Mourinho's first defeat with the Giallarossi, a 3-2 uh, defeat at Verona. But the game we're going to talk about, the Sunday night action, Juventus 1, Milan 1. This one was uh, pitched on by the CPS crew, Taylor, as a must-win for Juve. And they didn't win. They didn't yeah. must win it, did they? We had, a, we had a Milan side with no Ibra, no Giroud. You could interpret that as kind of being there for the taking. And Juve did not do the taking. They did not. And I did enjoy the, yeah, that, that pre-match. This is a must win. They have to win. And then the post-match was like, let's not be, like, let's not be overreacting here. Let's be <laughs> calm. Like, they didn't have to win this one. And that is sort of indicative of what I've seen from Juve fans. That, like, if you asked... A Juve fan to their face, like, what did you think of that result? I think you'd get the very high pitch, like, it, it was good, it was real good. Like, the, the high pitch always means we're not particularly thrilled. And I think for Juve, who are what still in 18th place right now, uh, probably not the start they wanted with two points from the first four games. So it's definitely a positive that they got a point here. I think less so that they ended up conceding because there were sort of aspects of this game that fa- felt very much like, oh, this is Allegri Juve, this is how they do things. They get that goal, they lock it down, they make defensive changes, they see the result out. And I think the d- the deviation here was that he did all those things but then made attacking changes and I think left them a little bit open or more open than they wanted to be. So I think it's a an okay result for Juve, but I, I do agree with you that it's probably not the the result they were hoping for or maybe needed to ensure that they were moving in the right direction. Well, yeah, we, we just mentioned about Thomas Tuchel and his, his game management. And we had Allegri here who, he did make attacking changes, Taylor, but he waited, what, an hour to do them? Um, making three subs after, this, after the hour mark here. It felt, it felt a bit Arsene Wenger there with his use of substitutions. Um, Graham, what, what's your thought on Allegri's reign so far? Winless in four in the league, in the last four in the league. They just looked, in that last sort of 20 minutes or so, they and they mentioned this on the commentary as well, it just looked a bit low energy, a little, little tired. And, and that was the point where Milan looked like they were going to steal it. They were charging towards the end and looked like they, they got the, uh, the, the equaliser through Ante Rebic, the uh, makeshift forward. It looked like they could have stolen another one as well at that point because of the lack of energy yeah. that Juve seemed to show. Yeah, for much of this match, I, I to kind of echo what Taylor was saying about okay, this is Allegri's Juve now. For much of this match, I was thinking this this is much more like it from from Juventus, you know. And and even after full time, I am tempted to say it was better from Juventus because obviously they have taken up a point against AC Milan, you know, one of the one of the title challengers, which is really the the first strong team. I guess they lost to Napoli as well, but I say AC Milan are a stronger team, so it, it's not a, in isolation. It's not a terrible result. However, when I when I look back over it. It really kind of felt like 
more of the same from from Juventus, you know, who only had themselves for not uh, only had themselves to blame for not winning this. I should say, you know, the header from Rebic is is a great one, but he's afforded so much time inside the box to get on the end of the corner kick. Locatelli, who who should who should be so much tighter, is just nowhere near him. And I saw Chesney going absolutely nuts at Locatelli for his his lack of marking. Who must be thinking, "Don't you start?" This was a rare occasion this season where Chesney didn't throw one into his own net. So I'm not sure he's in the best position to to criticize his teammates. But yeah, I felt it was poor from Juventus. They weren't able to kill off the match when they were the the dominant side. They then concede a poor poor goal, and the and the dynamic of the of the game changes completely. And as as I think you you were referencing there, Ryan, that AC Milan really should have won it late on when uh, Kalulu is played through and puts his finish over over the bar and had that had that gone in and, and Milan claimed the win we would have we would have been having exactly the same discussion about Juve that we've had after every game they played so far this season so it, it, it was fine margins and I thought some of it was better and then some of it was more of the same and then after full time I think it's a, it's a similar discussion I do think one player who came out of this game with a lot of credit was probably Alvaro Morata um, a fantastic finish from him to, to open the scoring he had pretty much the whole opposition half to, to think about to run into what he was going to do and then he has the composure to, to chip the, the ball over Mignon and the, and, the, and the AC Milan goal and this of course is after another brilliant finish against Napoli last week so I'm watching this game thinking where was this composure during the Euros he could have had the golden boot in the group stage and saved Spain a whole distress had he shown that sort of uh, composure and in general I thought it was a good performance by him particularly in the first half as I say he he nearly turns home a, an Alexandro cross where he kind of nips across his marker gets a, a flick finish towards the near post it's a good save he was linking up well with Dybala and a lot seemed to be flowing through him so I think after the Napoli game I said I'm not too concerned about the attack despite the fact that that there's this easy narrative that Ronaldo having gone to Manchester United and scored four goals in three games United are joint top of the Premier League while Juventus are in 18th place that's a very easy narrative that they're missing him I'm not too worried about the attack but there are definitely concerns elsewhere in the pitch it's just it's that overall vulnerability Graham I think you're, you're dead on there because even like Morata coming in scoring that goal looking composed in a Juve shirt that feels like Juve under Allegri Dybala being very good in that sort of second striker number 10 position gets the assist but that was what we saw from him under Allegri in the past and and so then for this game to go the way it did for it to be 1-0 for Juve to sort of try to basically frustrate uh, Milan to the point where they couldn't create anything and there are moments in the second half where they had seven and eight of their defenders in their own 18 like in the past, I think it, it like to go with a three little pigs analogy, like Juve had a brick house that teams were trying to attack. And no matter what they did, it just felt like it was impermeable. And then Juve would kind of bust out and go the other way and score another goal and win two or three nil. And here for this to be played at Juve Stadium, but for it to be Milan dominating in those last 30 minutes and Milan, again, without without Giroud, without Zlatan, makeshift attack, they find a way to get an equalizer. They're pushing for the winner. That does not feel that feels like the straw house that feels like a sort of weak Juve or a vulnerable Juve that still haven't quite sorted things. And I will say, like, this might sound very, very harsh, but I do think Adrian Rabio is part of the problem because in the past, when Allegri kind of settled on his different formations, it was either a back three with two midfielders or a 4-2-3-1 with kind of two box-to-box midfielders to ball ahead of them. And, and I don't think he's quite 
got the idea of how he wants to utilize his personnel and in what position. But even in the goal uh, for the the equalizer for Milan, you can watch uh, Chesney pushes Rabio, or excuse me, he pulls him back. He pulls him back to where he wants him to be. And then Rabio, it's a minor thing, but takes like two or three steps forward as the ball is about to be taken. And if he had stayed where he was or even backed up a little bit more the way Chesney was pulling him, he wins that header and it goes away. But because he steps out, there's space to be attacked. And I think Locatelli is supposed to be following, so supposed to be tracking, maybe supposed to block off, block off that run so it can't get there. But I think just those little individual mistakes end up costing Juve and, again, feed the idea that they're just not having that level of stability that they've had in the past. Still very early days, and they still might get there. But I think it's it's got to be a worrying sign if you're a Juve fan, which I'm guessing is why, again, they had high-pitched voices when discussing this game at full time. <laughs> they did. And by the way, uh, Adrian Rabio's, Rabio's mother, if you are listening, that was Taylor. Yeah, I know, I'm scared. He was the problem, <laughs> not anyone else. Let, let, let that be known. Uh, Joe, let's talk about Milan, though. They've got to be happy coming to Turin and getting a draw and almost coming away with the win. As much as it is an indictment on Juve that they, you know, this is a, this is supposed to be a fortress, this stadium, and the, the table's very much turned in the second half on them, particularly in the latter part of the second half. You've got to be happy as Milan coming here with with um, with a, a non-complete strike force and with that Rebic playing in that central role up top as well and getting a point. That's a, that's a good point, isn't it? Absolutely. Milan came in here with a makeshift front line and they played well. They played much better than they did against Liverpool midweek in the Champions League. A lot of that for me is down to the fact that Juve didn't really press them high like Liverpool did. And and that's what Milan struggled with in the Champions League was coping with Liverpool's high press and they turned the ball over and over and over again. They turned it over, over and over and over again. This this game didn't really have that because of Allegri's tactical approach, especially after they get that early goal. It, it changes the game a little bit. So Milan have more time to play. And I thought I thought they looked solid in possession. They had this 3-4-1-2, 3-5-2 shape in possession that they started out with, and then they tweaked it a little bit uh, in the latter stages of the first half, or at least the start of the second half that moved more to a four-at-the-back shape that we saw uh, Pioli use earlier this season, last season in the Champions League as well, midweek. And they looked dangerous in possession, and they looked dangerous on the break as well. And if you can do both of those things against a team with as much talent as Juventus, that bodes well for your season. I thought Brahim Diaz was phenomenal as that number 10. He started out you know, with the back three behind him and a couple midfielders behind him as well in Tonali and, and Kessie. And I really liked I really liked what Brahim Diaz in ter- did in terms of picking spots, moving off the ball, receiving on the half turn, then driving forward. He had a, gr- a few great examples of that inside the first 10 minutes. Had an excellent one in the 61st minute to get uh, Milan into the box. So I really liked what I saw from Diaz. Leao is, a, is an incredibly fun player to watch on that left side he was oscillating between the left and the front and he'll move into different spaces he loves to dribble on that left side he caught my eye earlier this season as well when I was watching some Milan I thought this was a strong performance from them and the fact that they looked the more likely team to get that game winner as this game progressed I think that that shows pretty well for them we've got both Milan teams at the top of the table both in the Champions League Juve not dominating Taylor I'm I'm getting tingles of nostalgia about Italy this year Yeah, I mean, let, let's let's hope it doesn't go like like full Italy in the '90s, because then I think we're gonna have scandals uh, to come. But yeah, it does it does feel like an exciting uh, time to be a Serie A fan, especially with uh, Jose Mourinho and Roma there as well. For any number of ways that that could end up playing out, I think we've got an exciting season ahead of us for sure. 
We do indeed. And as I say, Roma getting their first defeat. Um, Mourinho no longer the perfect one in terms of yep. point uh, intake there. But um, yeah, it's Milan fans have had a relatively tough time in the last few years. So it's good to see them yeah. certainly competing on this front and having a team that can do this, uh, Taylor, in Turin, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I you, you have to be at least somewhat more optimistic about the way things are going to go if this Milan team were able to go to Juve and kind of take the game to them. I think you'd back them to, if they can maybe reinforce a little bit more in January, get some of those big-name players that we've already talked about back, you would expect them to, at the very least, stay in that top-four conversation and maybe stay in that title conversation as well. Time will tell. But yes, I think this was, if anything, a result that both teams are okay with, but Milan probably more okay with the draw than Juve. All right, gents, why don't we turn our attentions to La Liga? More specifically, we had Valencia taking on Real Madrid. Uh, both teams, Graham, are having the chance to uh, j- go top of the league here. Real Madrid took that chance, a 2-1 win at the Mestalla for them. Uh, a big Benz-inspired comeback, a goal and assist from your favourite player, Graham. Yes, he was, uh, as I said at the top of the podcast, very impressive once again. If there was a, a Ballon d'Or for the first few weeks of the season, let's call it Player of the Month, I guess, uh, ba- Karim Benzema would be that player. He's, I think he's got, had a direct hand in, in 10 goals in five games in La Liga this season, um, which is quite incredible. But I also think a big mention should go to Vinicius Jr., who looks a completely different player this season. It has almost been... Ronaldo-esque in the way that he has gone from this tricky winger who was criticised for lacking an end product to someone who is all about the end product now. He he produced a goal and an assist here, uh, scores the equaliser, then puts the, the cross on, on Benzema's head for, for, for the winner. And yeah, he's he's got five goals in five La Liga games this season, which is as many as in his previous 59 La Liga games before that. So it's it's an incredible turnaround. I don't think many expected Vinicius to be such a key part of Ancelotti's team this season, but he ha- he's now undroppable. He, along with, with Benzema, there's real signs of a relationship between these two. Of course, people will remember Benzema was caught last season at halftime of a, of a game in the Champions League last season, saying that Vinicius was playing against Real Madrid and tell- telling Ferlan Mondi not to pass to him. So there was a bit of friction between those two previously, but the relationship between them this season has been the main reason that uh, Real Madrid are winning games. And how do you feel, Graham, about the relationship between Casemiro, his studs, and the shins of opposing players here? There was a big foul on uh, Maxi Gomez. It looked pretty bad. He got a lot of the ball with it, but he got away without a red card there. What did you make of that incident? There was also, yeah, I mean, Casemiro, he has a cloak of invisibility, I think, yep. in a lot of these games, <laughs> uh, not just in terms of bad fouls, but in terms of niggly fouls that he should get uh, yellow cards for, and he doesn't. And there was, a, I think he, it was him who contributed to the, the injury to Carlos Soler in, in the first half, who Soler has to go off, go off after, I think, 10 minutes or so. And that was a big blow to, to Valencia at the time. I should mention that, um, given that this, uh, there's a lot of American listeners to this podcast, that Yunus Musa comes on and is fantastic, was, was brilliant for Valencia, um, was made the Real Madrid midfield look really old for a long period of this match. There was one chance in particular he creates where he bursts to the byline sets it back to Gonzalo Guedes who's been in, in excellent form this season really should score he puts it over the bar but yeah Musa was, was very good and um, I guess one person who's not so happy about that is Soler who has along with Maxi Gomez he has the studs of Casemiro still embedded in his shin and, and two, two things there oh sorry Joe go ahead oh no it, it's all good I'm guessing we're going to say something similar Taylor as much as I'd love to be all aboard the Yunus Musa in this game train I'm still all aboard yeah. the Yunus Musa train 
he had good moments, but I, I don't think he was actually all that good, Graham. Maybe it's just the case of Taylor and I, it seems like he agrees, being more nitpicky with Musa because we watch these guys in such detail. He's out at right midfield again, which is where he played almost all of last season under uh, Javi Gracia. And he played that spot and has that great 1v1 uh, moment to, to get into the box and create a chance. He has a couple other good moments as well, but also just over dribbled a bunch, didn't look entirely comfortable at that spot because I maintain, I think Greg Berhalter was totally right about this, he's not really best suited to play wide midfield. He's much better suited to play in central midfield and play uh, as a ball-progressing central midfielder. He loves to drive the ball forward, and he can do that out wide, but then after he drives the ball forward on the dribble, he has to actually take someone on and get in the box, which is not his skill set. He's much better at doing a lot of the heavy lifting and progressing the ball to the final third and then laying it off simply, and he didn't really get to do those things in this game. He also struggled a bit defensively, just just not clean enough yet from Yunus Musa, which is fair because he's just working his way back from injury, but not quite the the excellent performance that I'd hope to see from him in this game. Okay, I fair I'm, enough. I, I felt maybe, I, I thought maybe um, just the way he was kind of breaking through, maybe I'm taking more note of his kind of, his energy in, con- yeah. in contrast to Modric well. and Casemiro. Yeah. So maybe maybe in my mind that, that contributed to what I thought was a good performance. But fair enough, I can I can see um, why it maybe wasn't he the complete least, performance. He set up at least one decent chance as well, I seem to remember. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, th- yeah. there's there's good things here. And, and Graham, sorry, I wasn't trying to like curb stomp you there or anything. That was not my no, intention at all. It's, <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I, like, well, I just felt like, oh, well, actually, Graham. Blah, blah, blah. This podcast has gotten real violent <laughs> lately. <laughs> Theft, robbery, people I'll get the danger. vigilante on you, Joe. Yeah, right? <laughs> I'm scared. I'm scared. But I, I just think, I think this is not yet the full package from Yunus Musa, and I think he can do more. And I, for one, I'm, I'm disappointed. It's a new manager for Valencia, and Musa's still playing that same spot. I'd hoped that after Gracia you know, moved on, that we would see Musa play centrally more often, and I'm afraid that's not going to be the case. I think, I think I'm somewhere in between, and if, if anything, I maybe lean a little bit more towards what Graham was saying, just because, Joe, you, you said it quickly there, but I think this is Yunus Musa who's still... Uh, coming back from injury, getting his fitness, kind of getting his steps in, uh, or very quick steps in. Uh, and I think this is probably a game where he was intended to play maybe 30 minutes and was meant to be a second half substitute. But then there's the injury. He has to come on really early. And so I do think by the end of the game, you see that relative lack of fitness for him in the way he is sort of maybe less aggressive. And I think he's, he is kind of looked at as a player who doesn't close down Vinicius when he plays that ball in for the winner. I think that's a bit harsh because I also think defensively he was left out a lot of the time or left out to deal with things on his own because the way Valencia were setting up in their defensive system was that he was tracking uh, basically whoever would sort of make attacking runs into that left midfield, left defense sort of space. Musa would then pick up that runner. But what that left was was a ton of space. Usually in the first half, at least, it was Luka Modric then filling that space and then Musa had to go step to Modric. If Modric was able to bypass him and play a ball forward, then he had to hustle back and get into position again. And it did seem like he was kind of pinballing between Madrid players at various points in this game, and I think that will end up like taking a toll on your physical fitness, and then if you already are maybe only at 70% to start the game when you come on, then that's going to kind of deplete you pretty rapidly. So I think... Some of it is mitigated by him coming back from injury, and some of it is the maybe not being put in the best situational uh, position to kind of deal with Real Madrid. But I think, Joe, your point still stands that maybe he's not as comfortable there. Maybe if he's in a position where he has more, I don't know, just like familiarity or is just kind of like doesn't have to think as much, it's more automatic. Maybe we see a slightly sharper Yunus Musa. 
in the same way that it's nostalgic to see the Milan teams doing well, I also feel the same way about having, seeing this Valencia team at the right end yeah, of the table. Yeah. Well. Graham, I was really encouraged by what I saw from this team. This They contributed to a really fun, high-tempo game here. It was, it was really, really good watch, this one. They feel like a proper Champions League contender. I mean, it's, it's early doors. We're five games in, but it feels, they, you know, they, they were good off the ball. They they had 38% possession here, but 12 shots, I believe, from that. That's, that's pretty decent. And to, to do this against this Real Madrid team, I, I, I was impressed by them, Graham. Yeah, I totally agree with you that it, it feels almost right to have Valencia competitive towards the, the top end of La Liga. They are one of the the biggest clubs, you know, they're one of the the big four or five, you would say, in Spain. And the, in recent seasons, they've they've just been nowhere near that standard in terms of in, in the table. I, I found Valencia fascinating this season. Um, Jose Bordalas, it, it felt like that was going to be a bit of an experiment. Uh, I, I was trying to think how I would compare this in uh, through the kind of prism of of the Premier League. If I anticipated it to be a bit like Sean Dyche going to somewhere like Tottenham, it felt a little bit of an unnatural fit. Bordelas, his Atafi teams were known for being defensively organised, for being compact, for being conservative. However, while this team is founded, kind of, it's, there is still that sound defensive value. This Valencia team are far from a con- conservative side. You know, they stepped up high on Real Madrid. Guillamon in midfield was pushed slightly higher than would normally be the case. Guedes, as I mentioned, has been in excellent form. Juro was carrying real goal threat, and of course, he scores the the opener, which looked like being the winner for for a long time. So. And even the way Bordelas was able to absorb the, the early loss of Soler and, and, and Thierry Correa at, at right back, um, putting Tony Lato on and moving him over to left back was the, the change there. It just says to me that Valencia have a, have a coach who's got a clear image of what he wants this team to be. And I'm not sure that was the case with Yavi Garcia. Obviously, Valencia have had troubles, financial troubles, which meant they've had to sell a lot of their best players recently. But last season, you look at that Valencia team, you know, they finished in the bottom half of the table. That, that squad and that team is still a lot better than that. And it's, it's really good to see Bordelas come in and make more of that squad. Having said all that, I still feel like his his ma his, sorry his game management in the latter phase of this match may have cost Valencia. He takes off all the midfielders who can maybe keep the ball and and stop those waves of pressure from Real Madrid. They kind of hunker down, and ultimately that's what cost Valencia. Even you know they didn't even get a point out of this match because they just couldn't handle the amount of pressure that was coming from Real Madrid, the number of crosses that were coming into the box. And had he just been slightly more ambitious, I'm not saying they have to be full out attack for the full 90 minutes, but just given his team more of a platform to hold on to the ball for those last 10 minutes, they they almost certainly would have come out of this game with at least a point. So there's two sides to, to Bordelas's management from this one. But generally speaking, in terms of the impact he's made, I totally agree that this Valencia team looked to be in much better shape this season. Absolutely. And Graham, a quick kit watch for Real Madrid here. The aqua green on display in this one. Thoughts? I, I quite like it. I mean, Valencia have, have uh, sorry, Real Madrid have used that, that kind of colour scheme before. It's something they've, they've used in the last 10 years. So yeah, gets thumbs up from me. Excellent. We'll look forward to seeing it on your feed soon. The uh, the one where only <laughs> your fans uh, attend, Graham. Uh, this one, Valencia 1, Real Madrid 2. That's, uh, that's it for La Liga for our roundup this week. When we come back after this break, we're going to check in on Mr. Lionel Messi. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. 
Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Tonal Soccer Show, we are back. We're going to be talking League R Uber Eats. I, can't, I just love calling it its full title in a moment. But first, a quick look at the Bundesliga. A 7-0 win for Bayern Munich over Bochum. That put Bayern back at the top of the Bundesliga. 20 goals, Taylor, from their opening five games. Bayern, um, dominant, I suppose, is the word. Are you surprised? Yeah, not bad. Not so bad. It turns out when you bring in uh, a very young and motivated manager to a club that's already very good, and then you reinforce that squad further, uh, they're going to start pretty strong, and that they have. Credit to Bayern Munich. Uh, I feel like we we shouldn't just say it, it's over, but it does feel like there's it's going to take a huge derailment for Bayern Munich to not continue to kind of stroll through games at this point. Indeed. Uh, Wolfsburg, meanwhile, are not strolling through games. They are no longer invincible. They lost for the first time this season. They dropped points for the first time this season. They lost 1-0 at home to Eintracht Frankfurt. RB Leipzig, meanwhile, they were held 1-1 at Cologne. Uh, Leipzig are now winless in their last four. Joe, we've been pretty uniformly positive about Jesse Marsh's reign so far. When is the point when we start to criticise a little bit? Oh, I mean, I think we can criticize, and we could have already been criticizing, and I think we did in in certain moments. It's more the pressure is mounting, right? In each game that passes without this team winning, the pressure is growing, and and we're getting closer and closer to when legitimate questions about Marsh's future can actually, and legitimate conversations about his future can be had. I still think it's too early, but I'm I'm not trying to bury my head in the sand here and say that this is everything's fine. Everything's rosy. I think there are a lot of positive things happening with this Marsh team right now. But ultimately, if those things don't translate into results, it, it doesn't matter. 
Indeed. Got to get those points on the board. And that's what Borussia Dortmund did this Sunday. They got a 4-2 win over Union Berlin, including a brace from Erling Haaland. Uh, I don't know if you saw this one, Graham, but one of Erling, uh, Haaland's goals was Zlatan-esque. It was like this little lob over Crazy. the keeper. Wasn't it cool? It was a cool goal, wasn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> and ha- that was um, Haaland has 68 goals in 67 matches for Borussia Dortmund now. It's all right. It's quite a good record, isn't it? <laughs> It's not bad. Yeah. Yeah, I take that. <laughs> Good analysis. All right. Let's move on to uh, League R Uber Eats, shall we? We have Paris Saint-Germain taking on Lyon in Paris. 2-1 to PSG. This one finishes. Poch's PSG versus Peter Bosch's Lyon. This was. We had some flare-ups early on. I mean, literally flares going up, which made it hard to see the field for the first few minutes. A good atmosphere uh, in Paris, though. One, one of my favourite things about being sports coverage, Taylor, was messy ISO cam, the isolation cam, that maybe uh. every three or four minutes would cut to Messi. And every time they did it, he was just standing there with his hand on his hips. Yeah, that that is a strange choice. And like, I guess I theoretically understand it's Lionel Messi, but... Like maybe maybe don't build that 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 pressure so much right away because also Messi is not especially at at this point in his career not this dynamic box to box like oh what's he doing next sort of player I think if anything he has become a more I shouldn't say intelligent but like more cerebral player like I think that's a big part of his game these days is taking his time to evaluate what the opposition defense is doing how they're trying to play and then functioning within that and a lot of that is then evaluating what they're doing, kind of standing there, walking in between the lines, and then he starts to pick up his game from there. That wasn't the case in this one, and he does end up getting substituted in the second half uh, very angrily, I will add. But like, I, I really did not love that cam because I also think like this PSG team has so much talent and so many attacking options that it it in a weird way like hurts the league more like if if man united did that with ronaldo and had ronaldo watch it would just be sort of a like i i think it, honestly like a slight disservice to the rest of the team but also it makes the league just look a little bit like less like of a big deal it makes it look less official to me when it's like look at this player we've got like that's the thing that if major league soccer did people would be slamming major league soccer for being like oh look at this all they care about is the big name and it doesn't matter how good he is or what he does they just want cameras on him and <laughs> it seemed an odd choice to me so you remember the um simpsons episode where itchy and scratchy introduced a new character poochie and oh yes it was voiced by homer and one of homer's suggestions to improve poochie's role was to have when when poochie wasn't on screen have other characters be asking all the time where's poochie that's what messy <laughs> iso camp felt like to me it was that was where's poochie for soccer it was, uh, it was just, yeah oh, he's and- over there scratching his butt but then it was really weird because, yes, and that is the thing that Messi was doing on occasion. Uh, and there were definitely times when I felt like PSG players were asking, where's Messi? What's Messi doing? But it was also odd to me that with that camera, we saw him like really holding his knee and kind of adjusting it. And you could see him like like rubbing it. And there was just clearly some discomfort there or some awkwardness. And I think if you're Pochettino, you're, you do not want to be the manager who saw Messi rubbing his knee, looking in some pain, didn't sub him, and then Messi tears his ACL. Th- there, there is pressure to managing Lionel Messi and making sure that you get it right. And I think at this stage in the season, with the number of games they still have to play and the number of games that Messi has played last season and this summer, I don't blame Pochettino at all for making that decision. And 
I also thought it was strange that the coverage of that choice was he's taking off Lionel Messi to bring on a right back. Like, you've seen Atraf Hakimi play before, I would, I would assume. <laughs> that man is not a right back. Yeah. He can play right back. That man is a right winger slash a creative attacker. Like, he can do so many different things. That change made a lot of sense to me. I think it's just so strange to see Messi being substituted without him getting a standing ovation for scoring a hat trick. That, like, I think it stood out that much more. So, if anything, they didn't use the camera in the way that would have been useful. They used it in a way that almost made him look less impactful than he could have been when the when the commentary said uh he's a right back i literally pulled up transfer mark i was like yeah he's not described as that is he anyway uh-uh. uh it was um it was uh, leon who went up in this game lucas paqueta getting the opening goal here uh graham neymar got the uh the equalizer from the penalty spot how well did he sell that penalty when he he, he seemed to oh, get yeah. augusto the his opponent pretty much in a headlock before he went down yeah. I mean, to me, it looks like Neymar has his arm around the back of, of Gusto and he pulls him to the ground, which then causes him to collide with, with Neymar. So it was like Neymar instigated the challenge that brought him down. So yes, the contact, if you're looking at the contact in isolation, yes, it, there's enough contact for Neymar to go down there, of course. But yeah, there's a, it seems like there was yeah. a foul before that for me. So I, I have very large doubts about the award of that penalty. It was definitely one of those where if it had not been awarded, I don't think VAR changes it. But in the moment live, like I thought, oh, that's a stonewall penalty. He he swept the leg from behind. Like I think my notes, I literally wrote, uh, Gusto s- sweeps the leg and then I crossed that out on the replay. And it was more like, maybe clips him is what I ended up coming away with. I think, yeah, if, if it had not been given as a penalty, I don't think VAR overturns it. But it was and uh, PSG took that chance. They did indeed, and they got the winner, of course, in the 92nd minute via Mauro Cardi getting his head on it. Joe, what did you make of PSG's shape here? Um, was Neymar sort of slightly further out on the left than I expected at times? Um, what, what what was going on here? So I saw it as kind of a 4-2-4 in possession with yep. Messi and Mbappe central, and then you had Di Maria on the right and Neymar on the left. There's obviously some fluidity there, right, with those players interchanging. Not as much as I think we saw in in Champions League against Bruges midweek, but there is always going to be an element of fluidity with those four attackers, or even if Di Maria is not on the field when it's it's Messi, Neymar, and Mbappe up top together. And I saw it as that 4-2-4 with two of the more workman, workman-like midfielders underneath them, right? It's under Herrera and it's Adrissa Ganagay. Those two players were covering ground. And in PSG's shape, there was almost this divide between the back six, so the back four and the two central midfielders, and then the front four. And it was like, it was like the front four were allowed to kind of do their own thing, stay high, and then and then drop into space between the lines to discourage Lyon from being able to figure out where they're going, to discourage them from tracking those attacking players into midfield. And so the, the attacking quartet for PSG would stay high, then drop between the lines. They'd get the ball from either the double pivot or from the back four. The fullbacks would stay pretty deep. And so you had this divide where then Messi or Neymar or Mbappe or Di Maria could pick up the ball between the lines and drive forward. And I thought Messi and Mbappe in particular had some really nice moments and combination play kind of from the start of this game it wasn't seamless and it still doesn't look dominant yet from PSG I think they'll get there I'm not entirely sure at the very least they're going to be very very good as the season goes on but I I like the approach from Pochettino to give those players that attacking foursome as much space as possible to then allow them to drive the ball forward and create on their own I think there's a lot of value in the way that Pochettino a lot of merit as well in the way that Pochettino set this team up Joe, I was going to ask you a question about uh, a PSG player. So, sorry if this is putting you on the on the spot slightly, but 
Genie Wijnaldum was seen as a, a pretty big signing for PSG. And to me, looking at that front four of, you know, Neymar, Mbappe, Messi, Di Maria, who start this match, and then the fact that you, you're mentioning there kind of the midfield two, the platform of uh, just again, a gay and, and Ander Herrera, who are obviously in there to be workmanlike, as, as you described them. I, I'm not totally sure how Wijnaldum at this point fits into this team, which seems mm. like a real waste to have him coming off the bench for what is it the final five minutes he comes off the off the bench? I just wonder if you, if you have any thoughts on yeah. how he could possibly fit into this team. Yeah, I think Wijnaldum fits better. It's it's a spectrum here. It's not like he only fits in one way and doesn't fit at all in the other way. But I think Wijnaldum fits a lot better in a midfield three, where it is that four three three shape that's obviously incredibly fluid because you have to be if you have Messi in your team and the same goes for Neymar. You have to be fluid. But I think when all of them can push up out of a midfield three, like we saw him do with Liverpool, like we saw him do at times with the Netherlands over the summer, even though he played more as a just out and out number 10 in that particular tournament. I think when all of them can, can fit in that you know left side of number eight or right side of number eight role next to another central midfielder and in front of a six, because then he can get forward more. He can be a little more creative. He can make more plays. Whereas if you're putting him in a double pivot, maybe that doesn't utilize his skill set as well as it as it would in a midfield three. I think we'll see him do both of those both of those jobs because we've seen when all them be able to cover ground and cover space and, and help teams out by putting in the defensive work. But I, I think Wijnaldum may at this point be best suited to play in that midfield three and support and, and also be kind of an auxiliary playmaker in the in uh, to, to those players in the front line that we didn't necessarily see PSG utilize in this game. Uh, as we record, PSG are five points clear in league are uh, Uber Eats, once again, giving the sponsor the respect it deserves. Um, Man City are next wait, wait. up in the... What? Ryan, do you mind if I jump in really fast? Sorry. Just to say that, like, since I feel like we're wrapping up there, like, or on this game, like, I am so confused by the way this team gets covered. And I understand why there is, like, negativity when they don't win 5-0 for all the players they have. But the reaction to this game, Lyon, historically a very good team and a very tricky team to play against, the reaction has been as, as though PSG lost. Like, the Guardian headline for this was, Lyon show PSG they will not have it all their way in League One this season, or League One this season. And it's like, I get that, but PSG still won. They still haven't lost in the league. And even if you go to Reddit, and it's Reddit, so, you know, great assault there, but, like, almost every comment about this game was, Poch isn't going to make it till January, Poch has to go, <laughs> let's get Zidane in there, let's get Conte in there. That second one seems more laughable than the first. But it's just like, he's he's finding a way to get results with... So much depth, yes, but also so much depth that it, depth in some ways that it becomes a problem. That you have, like, to Graham's point, you have Gini Wijnaldum, who probably starts for any other club, certainly in France, but in many other leagues, and he is going to be a bench option. Marco Verratti not involved in this game. And there's just so many players that he has to juggle and figure out how to get the best out of. I, I think I have some sympathy for Pochettino, as strange as that sounds, to talk about a guy who's being paid more money than I will ever even like see or know actually exists. But for him to have this team starting the way they have with six, what, six wins from six, yes, there's the draw away in the Champions League. We'll see how that plays out. My guess is that they still ended up making it out of the group. I guess we'll, we'll then have to see what happens against Man City, as Ryan was uh, leading into. But I, I just, the reaction to this game seems so strange to me, especially because, yes, Messi is substituted out and doesn't have the impact that I think fans would have liked. But Kylian Mbappe still does Kylian Mbappe things. The way he can cross a ball after taking a touch, I don't think there's anyone in the world who can do that. It's such a weird little skill that he can take a touch with his right foot and then in the same motion cross the ball 
defenders, I think, never expect him to be able to do that that fast. And that is the reason why he's able to play that ball in for the winner. And just those little individual moments are what make him so special. It's what makes that team really, really exceptional. So I think this game showed us that Messi, Messi can still obviously raise his game and help have a bigger impact. But Mbappe is still very good. Neymar, I think, is trying to make it clear that this is his team and he is going to be the one to make the difference. And I thought this was a strong game from him. So overall, I thought this was a really strong performance from PSG. Yeah. This is only the third time that PSG have won their first six games of league on season. So mm-hmm. they're doing okay, despite everything. Right. Yeah, they're doing okay. Even if they are still coming out of the tunnel, that strange rubber curtain that they have at the part de France <laughs> is really weird. Like you have all that money, Messi isn't on your team, but your players are having to walk through the, the thing that hides the Zamboni machine at the ice rink. It's really strange. <laughs> and to a Phil Collins song, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. which okay. it's a strange entrance process. It's very strange indeed. I suppose my counter to that uh, argument about PSG are doing okay is when they do face Man City, I wa- I would be concerned if I was a PSG fan about how City are going to exploit that backline, given how you know Paqueta got in behind relatively easily, and there were chances for Leon. Yeah, I, I think that goes to to your question to Joe about the formation. I agree, it was a four-two-four. I would maybe amend it to make it a 4-1-1-4. Like, they were actively not trying to play through the middle. They were pushing numbers up. They sent fullbacks uh, further up. So even sometimes it was more than a 4-1-1-4. It was like a 2-1-1-6 at times. And and I think that was PSG really going for it because they sensed that Lyon were not. And even as the second half wears on, there's a moment when a Lyon player is calling for a foul um, near, like in the attacking third for PSG, and it doesn't happen. And most of the Lyon team stop and complain, and PSG keep playing. And, and Peter Bosch is screaming at his players to get themselves up and keep playing and keep that intensity up. And as the game went on, PSG just felt like they were growing into it and getting confident. Lyon felt like they were struggling to hang on and just trying to boot the ball clear and had kind of deviated from their game plan. And I think in the past, when we've seen PSG come undone and, and just lose that confidence, they're the ones who panic. They're the ones who feel that pressure and start taking ill-advised shots and get caught out and complain when they don't get the call they want and lose focus on the game. And it just was notable to me that in this game, they didn't. It felt like we're going to stick with it. We're going to grind. We're going to keep going. And eventually we're going to get something. And eventually they did. So I thought... That was kind of the approach for Lyon against Man City. I'm guessing they're going to be more defensive. I'm guessing they will have a few more central midfielders in there. And it's also the case that I think against Man City, the players are more okay with that. Like, I think you can ask Messi to to do a little bit more defensive work or Angel Di Maria to do more defensive work or Neymar. And they're going to do that because it's Pep and Man City. If it was Claremont Foot, I doubt they're going to be as willing to run all over the place. In that's PSG and Liga Uber Eats. Uh, by the way, if you are using Uber Eats, uh, use the code TSS in the checkout. It won't give you any discount. It's just good practice for you. Uh, one last thing to do uh, in this episode, uh, a brand new feature we're going to test out today. Joe Lowry's MLS Corner. Joe, yeah. we're going to put you on the spot. Will you tell us a little bit about some uh, big uh, Major League Soccer uh, results from this weekend? Uh, Portland 2, LAFC 1. Is that the headline game from the weekend? Uh, it's certainly one of the headline games. LAFC is still not having the strongest season by their own standards. They just sold Diego Rossi to Turkey, one of their best attacking players. But that result is a big one in MLS. I'd argue there were a few bigger results, though. The first one being FC Dallas's 3-2 loss to the Houston Dynamo, because that loss, by all accounts, triggered uh, Dallas's ownership to fire Luchi Gonzalez, who is in his third season as, or was in, in his third season as FC Dallas's manager. 
uh, he'd done really well to bring the kids along. He, he worked in that academy and led the academy in Dallas before taking over as the first team head coach. Dallas, though, only 11th in the Western Conference this season after that loss. It's not looking like they're going to sneak into the playoffs. And to be honest, they've been underwhelming on the field this season. A lot of that, though, for me, is not necessarily on Luchi Gonzalez. It's more on the front office for missing on a lot of the foreign signings that they've had. Luchi Gonzalez has proven that he's willing to play the kids, which has been huge for Dallas and continuing the reputation as this global sort of club in a way that, honestly, all these clubs who are trying to rebrand themselves to become a global brand can't even sniff. But but Dallas, the on-field product was lacking. And I think in that regard, it's understandable that Luigi Gonzalez is gone. So that's that's a big storyline from the weekend. Another one is Atlanta United's 3-2 win over DC United, which had an incredible number of bangers in it. I mean, there are just incredible goal after incredible goal in this game. Joseph Martinez gets a more run-of-the-mill goal, but it's a great moment from him and Ezekiel Barco. The thing that stood out to me most from this game, though, wasn't Joseph, it wasn't Barco, it wasn't DC United scoring two bangers in the second half. It was Luis Araujo, who's a 25-year-old designated player that Atlanta United signed from Lille in Liga. Yeah, that's that's title winners Lille from last season. You don't see MLS going out and signing in their prime players from top five leagues very often, and so that signing's notable on its own. But but Araujo is playing extremely well under Gonzalo Pineda right now, who who's a, a new coach for Atlanta United coming over from Seattle. Araujo was excellent in that 3-2 win. He was driving down the field, cutting through DC United players, driving into the box, just causing absolute mayhem. Played a great through ball to Joseph Martinez in the second half that almost sent Atlanta you know, towards another goal in that game. He's phenomenal. He looks like one of the best players in MLS right now. So if you have a chance to turn on any MLS game, he's kind of making Atlanta United a must-watch team. My last quick bullet point here. The New England Revolution drew 1-1 with the Columbus crew over the weekend. Not the best result for them. They were favored to win that game and probably should have. But even despite that draw... New England is on pace to win the Supporters' Shield and set an MLS single-season points record. They're averaging uh, 2.15 points per game. LAFC, back in 2019, set the points-per-game record in MLS with 2.12. So the Revs under Bruce Arena are are looking on pace to control this season, win the Supporters' Shield, and take home that particular record. You don't get anything for that, but, you know, we appreciate you. They have Adam Buxa, who's one of the best number nines in MLS. They have Carles Hill, who's back and healthy by all accounts. He is the best playmaker in MLS. They are going to be a hard team to beat. Tejon Buchanan, Gustavo Bo, they have some solid midfielders cleaning up the work in behind. It's not, obviously it's not PSG, but there are some comparisons in terms of the attacking players really carrying the load and then some workman-like midfielders in behind them. Bruce Arena's done a great job with this squad and they look like the favorites to uh, win at least one trophy, if not two this year. And Joe, another result that stood out, I saw Inter Miami losing 4-0 to the Red Bulls. <laughs> um, they're still ninth in the conference and three points off the playoff spots. Oh, That's, that feels wild. MLS is wild. And, and the league is about parity, at least to an extent. And I think that is shown quite well here in this Miami situation. They are not a good team. They have some good players, but they are not a good team. They could very well sneak into the playoffs. They're not a threat for me to go far at all, If not maybe not even to win one game in the playoffs. But the Eastern Conference is wild this year. DC United is now outside of the playoff field after that 3-2 loss to Atlanta. But they've been excellent this year, at least relative to where they were in Ben Olsen's last season. So there is parity everywhere in the league, especially in the Eastern Conference, I think, right now. And Inter-Miami going from being just inside that playoff field in, in, you know, in the top seven to then getting absolutely smashed by the New York Red Bulls, who had been really struggling under Gerhard Struber. MLS gonna MLS, baby. Here we are. 
<laughs> it is indeed. Uh, listener, by the way, we gave uh, Joe zero prep time for MLS Corner. That all came off the dome piece. I'm very impressed, <laughs> Joseph Lowry. Good job, <laughs> buddy. I um, feel inferior after that. Yeah. <laughs> Graham, you did that on you did that on Scottish football like every week, I swear. You did a whole 101 on that, Graham. Come on now. Yeah, but no one wants to listen to that. That's the difference, so... <laughs> <laughs> and no one's really aware of what's happening in Scottish football, so Graham could just be making it all up. That's, I feel like there are MLS fans who will let Joe know if he gets like a, a number wrong. Or actually, he was playing as a left wing back, less so of a, like a left back. Uh, so yeah, Joe, well done. Thank Nicely you. done, my Thanks, friend. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Hey, Ian Hart scored at the weekend. Hey. Oh, hey. Former MLS <laughs> fame. He scored the winner for Dundee United in the Dundee Derby, so there you go. Oh, and Graham, uh, while we're on the subject of Scottish football with an American, uh, like, like, like... Uh, tint to it. I forgot uh-huh. the word for a moment. Uh, Joe and I were super, super positive about Cameron Carter-Vickers last oh, Tuesday. Whoa, about whoa, how whoa, it seemed whoa, like he had whoa. finally found his <laughs> his sort of place. It seemed like he seemed comfortable. Uh, did we immediately jinx him? Yes, you did. Okay. Yep, completely. <laughs> he was absolutely dreadful against Real Betis and then yeah. was on the team that lost to Livingston at the weekend and Celtic are in sixth in a 12-team league. Oh, man. This is why we can't have nice center backs. Uh, <laughs> all right. Anyway. Hey, and John note. Brooks. John Brooks also on the bench for Wolfsburg. Just good stuff across the board. I feel great. Indeed. Lots of reasons to feel great, Tay-Tay, including your stellar performance on this podcast. Thank you very much. I mean, I think it was just me forgetting words and making loud noises and not remembering specific things about leagues like Joe and Graham. <laughs> but that aside, Ryan, I appreciate the kind words. Thanks so much. That's usually my role, Taylor, so thank you for assuming that. Um, Joe Lowry, <laughs> thank you as always, sir. Wonderful MLS corner. Long may it continue. Oh, thanks, guys. Uh, and Graham Rutherford, a tiny Scottish corner we gave you there. You can have an expanded <laughs> corner next week if you like. Thank you very much, sir. Oh, thanks, Ryan. And if anyone wants to uh, join my vigilante, just send me a tweet. <laughs> you know, Ryan, I think, first of all, people should send Graham that tweet about vigilantism. But also, I think I'm so impressed by what J- Joe has done. I want to say it's hard to exaggerate what Joe has done for the profile of men's football in the United <laughs> States. And I think, you know, the women have won many World Cups, but few American men have done more for the game oh, than yikes. Joe and his uh, accompanying team. There's like half the people out there that have no clue what's going on. I yeah. just think you guys are getting way too excited about MLS Corner. Uh, look up a, a tweet. You'll find the tweet. I, you guys can find it. I am ducking from the shots fired and it's not because of Graham's vigilanteism let's just say that <laughs> listen up thank you very much we'll catch you next time bye